thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I'm glad to have you with me. And today, we begin the third episode of a series I began two weeks ago. I think if my math right, that, that would be correct, right? Three minus two would be one. There we go, two weeks ago. On the why and how of Christian political engagement. And I want to begin today with just a word of personal privilege, I guess you could say. Uh, as I said at the top of this series, it will be in many ways a revelation, a disclosure of my own personal journey as a Christian involved in politics for the last 27 years. I uh, began by running for office in 1994 and I realized over time that while my intentions were good and many of the things that I pursued policy-wise were true, were consistent with biblical principles, I had so much wrong. And the reason I want to say that to you is, is because I want to confess, if I had been listening to this podcast series 10 years ago, I would have never made it to the third episode. You see, my, my general nature, my personality is really type A. It's what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And I would have been looking for a podcast that tells me what to do. I would have look, been looking for a podcast that would say, how should I think about this issue? And I wouldn't have had time for these deeper reflections that we began to engage on last week about what is the gospel and what is our thoughts about God? What are our thoughts about God? What What is our doctrine of God? I, I, would, I would have been like... I'm, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and I need to know what to do about these issues that are on my plate. And maybe, maybe you've felt that way sometimes in your own life. Maybe you've you've sensed that you know I don't have time for this. I, this this is not relevant. It's not germane. It doesn't really matter. The question is, what should I be doing, and how should I think biblically about what I'm doing? And that, to me, is my problem, or was my problem still struggle with it and I believe it's much of the problem that we find in Christendom today as we look at the things going on around us. So I, I just want to say to my listeners if if you like some of these discussions that we've been having wonderful if you think oh my goodness are we going to mire up in this stuff again yet this week I'm turning the I'm turning the podcast off let me, let me encourage you to stay with the course I think that you will find yourself in time blessed and your views of God enlarged, your views of your own uh, purposes and your own priorities uh, changed. And, and that's really how I want to begin today because if you'll recall last week, I played a clip from Dr. Grant and he said that the first thing we need to think about when it comes to public policy is what do we know about God? We start with theology, not anthropology. And I said, if he had said that to me five years ago, I would have been like, I don't understand. What do you mean? That's what I was saying really at the 
beginning of this week's episode. What, how am I supposed to think about this and what am I supposed to do? Not what do I know about God? That would not have been my starting place. And he said something was very important that I want to re- repeat as we go into this week's episode. He said that starting with theology, who God is, what we know about God, rather than anthropology, who we are, man, man's problems, man's issues, man's existential moment, and what do we do under these circumstances. He said, it might not change your policy position, but it might change your purposes, your priorities, and your methods, or I would call them maybe, let's say, processes. So we have a nice PPP, uh, purpose, priorities, and processes. And that's what's really happened uh, to me. And, and so today I want to, to pick up again with something that is so fundamental and, and I, I hope you'll bear with me as I keep repeating it because I have to keep repeating it to myself. And uh, it's this, that if we don't start our worldview with a fully thought out understanding of what is entailed in Genesis 1-1, one, we will tend to reduce or shrink that which is encompassed by our Christianity and what Christianity relates to. So when you run into Christians who do not want to engage in politics or government or public policy issues at, at any level, and man, I have run into them from the first weeks of my campaign. I don't get involved in politics. You know, I just care about Uh, proclaiming the gospel, those kinds of things, bearing witness, uh, personal holiness. As as Dr. Andrew Sandlin said it, people who who think we should spend our time evangelizing the lost and sending missionaries and working on our personal sanctification. When you you run into those kinds of people, I would say that most likely they do not start their understanding of the gospel with Genesis 1-1. Now, I'm not saying they're not Christians. Hear me on that. But I'm saying they don't start the gospel with Genesis 1-1. In fact, I had a minister several years ago that I recall said, where does really the gospel begin? And uh, he posited that it began in uh, Genesis 12 with the promises to Abraham. Others would say, no, the gospel begins with the uh, pro-evangelon, I think is what the theologians call it, in Genesis 3.15, that, that there would be the seed of the woman and the serpent would bruise his heel, but uh, the seed of the woman would crush his head. And they'd say, that's where the gospel starts. But really, the gospel starts with Genesis 1.1. And this goes to the very heart of the why of Christian political engagement not just the how, but the beginning of, of why. And today I want to give you just two reasons for why it is so important that we get it straight in our heads that the gospel begins within the beginning God. Now first, I'll say something else that will maybe be controversial to many, even as maybe Dr. Grant's uh, explanation of John 3.16 was last week. But the gospel is not repent and be saved. Though it's true, we must repent. And without repentance, there is no salvation. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not 
you must be born again. Though that is also true. But here is what the gospel is according to the Bible. You can look it up. But except for one instance, every place in which the word gospel is paired with the word of, saying what the good news of the gospel is, it's associated with either the kingdom of God throughout Matthew, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, or some variation thereof, the one exception being uh, the kingdom of peace, I believe it is. But the gospel is about the proclamation of God and who God is and the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ. It's this proclamation, when made clear, that allows us to see our need to repent, our need to be born again. And that's why I said last week that everything really begins with knowing God, knowing who God is, our doctrine of God. Now, let me just say here real quickly, for those of you who might have been like I was maybe 10 years ago, don't let the word doctrine turn you off. If you have any belief about God, you have a doctrine of God that's part of it, whether you realize it or not. We can't get away from the way God has made the world. It's a world of antithesis. So you've probably heard people say, there is no truth is a truth claim. You can't even deny the existence of truth without making a truth claim. And you can't say that the doctrine of God is unimportant or you don't have one or you don't care if you have a belief in God. There is some doctrine that comes along with it that actually precedes it. And in my view, just, just to bring this home for you, one of the worst song lyrics, I think, in all of contemporary Christian music, and there's a lot to choose from, is, is this song I, I loved when I was in uh, high school and college. It's Do I Trust You. It's the one I used to sing all the time. And the, the singer's name is not relevant. You don't need to go look it up. You don't need to know who, find, find out who wrote the lyrics or sang the song. I'm not calling into question anyone's salvation. But here is the lyric. I know the doctrine and theology and right now, they don't mean much to me. This time, there's only one thing I got to know. Do I trust you, Lord? You see, the, the writer was saying that there are times when the world doesn't make sense. And, um, and what the writer was saying, in those moments, the doctrine and theology, they don't mean much. I just want to know, do I trust you? And that's very lyrical and it's very melodic. But it's your doctrine and theology that gives you a reason to trust. Without it, all you're left with is subjective feelings which are useless. When your feelings are all upside down, and you don't know what to make of them, and you're down or you're depressed or you're discouraged, your feelings are not going to tell you to trust the Lord. It's your doctrine and theology. But here's what's even more ironic. Think about this. It is doctrine that the person is leaning on. The doctrine is this, presumably. How you feel about things is what you really believe about God. 
This is subjective theology at its worst. Subjective theology is essentially what Dr. Grant was saying last week when he mentioned a theology that begins with anthropology. And when it begins with us and we're messed up and our feelings are messed up, our theology's messed up, and we have no hope. We have no rock. We have no foundation. We are in sinking sand. That's what it is. And we're going to come back to this next week, why knowing God is so essential to understanding anything, particularly why and how Christians should be engaged in politics, and what knowing God actually means. But, uh, said today, I'd give you two reasons why we have to get straight the fact that the gospel, if it's really going to inform our life's purpose, priorities, and processes, must begin at Genesis 1. And, and here it is. Again, I've already really alluded to it. But when we don't start at Genesis 1-1, we shrink that which is encompassed by Christianity and what it relates to. Now, let me join my first point about the gospel being the proclamation of God to this point about the kingdom of God. If the gospel is the proclamation of who God is and what God has done in creating, then to shrink the gospel is to shrink God. And we love to shrink God down to a manageable size. But when you start with God, as Dr. Grant said last week, even when it comes to public policy with a doctrine of God, you will see he cannot be shrunken down. So how is it that not starting in Genesis 1-1 reduces the kingdom of God? Well, first, the earth is no longer the Lord's in the fullness thereof and all the things in it. And the kingdom of God and its scope is therefore reduced. If you want to have a little bit better insight into Dr. Grant's proposition regarding uh, John 3.16 and God so loved the world, keep in mind that the context of the whole discussion is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's where Jesus began the whole conversation with Nicodemus. So when we keep in mind that the gospel is about God and the gospel is about the kingdom of God, then we can see why if we don't begin in Genesis 1 with who God is and what God has done, we will shrink the kingdom of God necessarily. So what I'm about to say about how we reduce the kingdom of God and shrink it down to a manageable size follows from what I've already really said about the gospel. Now, what does this shrinking look like? In his wonderful little book, Creation Regained, Dr. Albert Walters gives us three different shrunken views of the kingdom of God, essentially dualistic views of reality. The first and the most prominent I alluded to at the top of today's episode. It's known as pietism, which shrinks the kingdom of God to the sphere of personal piety in the inner life of the soul. Now, piety is good. Pietism is a form of Gnosticism and dualism. And here's what we have to appreciate. It is very consistent with transgenderism, which believes that who 
I am is the inner me, the inner person. It has nothing to do with the body or the things around me. So when we shrink into pietism, we undermine our own ability to talk about the body and the things around us as having relevance to who we are subjectively inside of ourselves. Another way to shrink the kingdom of God is to equate it with the institutional church. Now, Protestants often associate that with the Catholic Church and its efforts over the centuries to bring everything under its auspices. But look, there's a long history of that within Protestantism with the early Anabaptists. And, and often, though not always, this strain of thinking continues to have its influence. For example, consider those churches that have been building over the decades. It started when uh, in the 60s, as best I recall, when I was a younger child, it continues today for churches to, to do what? To build their own coffee shops and to even have them open during the week, to have our own gyms and family life centers. Now, we might invite some of the world in, but is the church really where the world wants to be? Or is it Starbucks or a private gym or the Y, where the word of Christ just isn't even prominent anymore? And, and we might rationalize to ourselves that, no, no, we want to have those things so we can invite the world in, but you have to be asking yourself honestly, is that so we can control who gets in and who doesn't and who we mingle with and who we don't? And again, it's, it's trying to bring everything under the auspices of the church and the institutional church, the programming of the church, rather than the church being outside the walls. So this, this sense of equating the kingdom of God with the institutional church and the things of the church and the programs of the church and what goes on in the church and, and being in and around the people of the church all the time, that is a form of a Gnostic dualism. And then uh, there are those in the dispensational camp. Many of my friends, I grew up in that camp, uh, they tend to think of the kingdom of God in relation to some eschatological future. The kingdom of God is not really here yet, it's coming. And really, it, it tends to then wrap itself up in pietism as well. But this, too, is a form of dualism. And somewhere in there is resonant the idea that the matter of this world, this world itself, is unredeemable. It's not really renewable and reconcilable. As if there's going to be another ex nihilo creation of a new heaven and new earth, because this one just is so bad, so horrible, it can't be renewed and restored. I, I mean, think about it, though. If we truly have become new creatures now, and we've been transferred into a new kingdom, then how is it that our bodies didn't have to physically, materially die now before we could ever start living in the kingdom of God? You see, this, this sense of dualism, the sense of to me, inconsistency between the kingdom of God and what God says has already taken place in me. I am a new creature, and I live in a new kingdom with a new king over it. And I'm to resist the old forms of the old kingdom in which I temporarily live. That's, that's uh, Romans chapter 12, 1, do not be conformed. And I'm to be transformed and to rethink how I think about all these things because I'm really not in that kingdom anymore. I'm living in a new one. But it's also rooted in, in a different kind of dualism, a dualism between the old and the new covenant. 
between the Old Testaments and the New Testaments. We saw that uh, within the last couple of years where a famous pastor's son, who's also a pastor, said, we really don't need the Old Testament. We shouldn't be spending time in the Old Testament. The New Testament is all we need. And, and what happens there is that we're seeing a complete disjunction between the Old and the New Covenants, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, rather than a continuity of fulfillment and progress. So I'm going to wrap up today's episode with that. And I want to just encourage you to spend some time thinking about the things that we've talked about today, to anticipate next week by thinking, what is my doctrine of God? What is it that I really believe about God? And in what way does that influence what I do? Why I do what I do? How I go about doing what I do? My, my purpose, my priorities, and my processes. And I look forward to joining you again next week as we continue this episode on the why and how of Christian political engagement. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.